This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. We're joined in uh, this portion of our program by Martin Shane Halls. Uh, Martin is an anthropologist on the faculty of Appalachian State University. Uh, previously, he's taught at Columbia University, Johns Hopkins University, University of Pennsylvania. Previously, he was the author of The Paradox of Power and Intimate Exclusion. He is joining us now to talk with us about a publication entitled Work, Love, and Learning in Utopia. Interesting title for a book, Equality Reimagined. Nice to have you join us on our program. Good morning. Nice to be with you, Bob. That title, including the word utopia in that, you know, mm-hmm. how much of a risk was that? Because uh, I asked the question because... You say utopia, and most people have an image, an idea in mind, but utopia also can be very easily misunderstood. It can, and it was a risk to use the word, um, but I wanted to use it really intentionally and chose to use it intentionally because the idea that we usually have and part of the cynicism that's attached to the word by some people derives from the idea that we can critique society as it is but can't or shouldn't imagine a better society. And I don't think that's true. I think that's really despairing to feel that you can't imagine something better. And so I want to do that, and I want to reclaim for the word utopia the hopefulness that can and should go with it. When you use the word utopia, to you, what does that mean? It means a a much better society than the one that we're living in, Um, one that thinks through... um, the practicalities, and in the book I do think through the practicalities that exist um, in terms of human nature, um, and yet realizes both the the bad and the good about humans in the possibilities of human nature. Um, and so it, it's kind of a hard question that you're asking in a way because we don't have any other word really to describe um, that better society that we can possibly imagine. And to me, that's really revealing that we don't have a vocabulary of talking about um, things that are hopeful and things that can be imagined. And when I use the word imagination, I don't mean that um, a utopia should be something fanciful that's disconnected from reality. I know that's one of the connotations people often associate with it. Um, I have grounded my utopia in social science research. I've given very concrete and practical um, proposals 
and um, my plan and my aim is to inspire people to think about uh, another world that could be possible. As part of that discussion and exploration, you examine the concepts of happiness, and you also look at, um, I guess, a certain part of human happiness being tied to hierarchy. What do you mean by that? Um, happiness is, is, is not tied to hierarchy. It's tied to inequality. We, we sometimes think wrongly that if we are the top of a hierarchy, if we make more money and we get more power, um, then we'll achieve a kind of ultimate happiness. And um, the reason that the subtitle of the book is Equality Reimagined um, is because what I show in the book is that equality is central to happiness for all people and that hierarchy causes anxiety and depression for those both on the bottom and those on the top. Well, would you say that in a way we're kind of hardwired to believe in or perhaps even value hierarchy? Um, I would be reluctant to say that because, uh, and here's why. So I am an anthropologist and study um, contemporary culture, but anthropologists also look at the evolution of humans. And if you go back to the very, very beginning, um, by which I mean the beginning of humans appearing on Earth in Africa roughly 200,000 years ago, from that time all the way up until about 6,000 years ago, we lived a very cooperative life. We lived a very egalitarian life. And we survived because we were cooperative and because we shared everything with each other. And sometimes when I tell that to my friends, they say, oh, that sounds like um, your imagination or ideology. But it's, it's not. It's, it's reality that's been carefully documented by anthropologists. Um, and so what that means is that for 95% of human existence on Earth, we have lived as egalitarians, and we have survived as egalitarians. And so I know that we can do it um, because we have done it for so long before. What's, what's really anomalous is perhaps our desire for hierarchy. There is that part in us, um, but I am hesitant to use the word or the concept of hardwired because one of the things about humans is precisely that so much of um, human ability is flexible and humans respond to different kinds of environments. And that's part of the hopefulness of hierarchy, uh, of utopia, not hierarchy, um, is that if you change the conditions of society, humans will act differently. So does that make all sense? I think so. I think so. I'm trying to digest that, um, too, as you're saying that. And I'm also thinking about um, 
you know, so many different areas where we can go in this discussion. Mm-hmm. Think back to Jane Goodall's work, mm-hmm. okay, uh, because those were really pioneering studies that she mm-hmm. did with chimpanzees, and that was back in the 1960s. Relatively speaking, it was a long time ago. Right? Mm-hmm. Those kinds of lessons, um, do they stand up today? Um, well, that's a very important uh, question to ask. Um, I have a great deal of respect, as most people do, for Jane Goodall. Um, but one of the things that's important to know is that she found different things. There's a scholar who looked very carefully at her work and at the work of other primatologists who've worked out in the field. And the reason that we look at chimpanzees is because they're the closest um, living ancestors to humans. And so what some scholars have argued in the past is that because chimpanzees, um, Jane Goodall found, engage in something like warfare, that warfare must be somehow hardwired into the primate, including into the human legacy. Um, But what the scholar, Margaret Power, who looked at um, Jane Goodall's work, found is that in the early days of Jane Goodall's work, when she was um, first doing her work, she just just looked at the chimpanzees in their natural environment, and they were quite egalitarian and quite cooperative and didn't show the kinds of things that she found later. And what she started to do um, was to provision the chimpanzees with bananas and Provisioning is an unnatural situation, but it's done reluctantly because it's hard to observe chimps in a natural environment. And so she had her workers put bananas into a box that they could open and close at will. That is, the workers could open and close um, the box at will because they had limited bananas. And so the chimps would all gather, the box would be open, they would take bananas, and then the box would be closed by the workers And it created a really unnatural feeding situation, a lot of frustration, um, and it led to a really toxic kind of response by the chimpanzees. It's only after that point of provisioning that the chimpanzees um, started to show the really aggressive desire um, among some chimps to become what people call despots, the, the kind of desire for certain chimps um, to become dominant over other chimps, um, and all kinds of other things that happen, the, the warfare, the violence, the aggression, all of those came out of a very unnatural situation. And so what that says is that chimps really aren't in their natural environment, pre-provisioning, as aggressive and warlike as people have thought. Mm-hmm. And because there are ancestors, that means the same is true of us. It's hard for us to see that because um, we do absolutely live in a very hierarchi- hierarchical society today, um, and hierarchy as of about 6,000 years ago, 
um, became endemic to the human condition. Um, but interestingly, some of the theories about how and why that happened 6,000 years ago have some resonance with the things that Jane Goodall found. As we settled down um, and became farmers in certain areas that were very productive, the population grew, and um, when the population grew, there was struggle between some groups against other groups. They went to war with them and uh, conquered them and enslaved them, and that was the beginnings of hierarchy, most likely. That's one of the most common theories. Um, so an unnatural environment um, that began with the, the origins of agriculture that concentrated food and led to certain kinds of aggressions and frustrations among humans most likely led to the beginnings of hierarchy for the first time in a very, very long history. Looking at the concept of learning and education in utopia, um, realistically, how would you see that playing out? And um, I guess would schooling today, the way that we know it, bear any resemblance to what it is? Uh, not a whole lot of resemblance. And that's, um, that's because we as children, of course, as young children, kind of before we go to school, love to learn and are curious and um, intensely curious about the world. And we don't have to have anyone making us learn how to speak a language or to inquire about the world. And I think one of the saddest things is that we take that very human propensity to um, learn and we start to require that to be engaged in. And, you know, anytime you compel something from someone, it almost always reduces the, the joy that you can feel from it. Um, I remember one student saying she loves to read history books, but the minute that a professor signs a history book to her, um, she, she finds it a burden. And I think we all can relate to that. I, I sometimes say to my students, imagine that whatever it is that you like to do, if you like going to the movies or like going to the beach, if I said, okay, this weekend, you have to go to the beach and you have to go to the movies, um, those suddenly would become um, unpleasant activities. And so it's the, the coercion and the anxiety that goes along with it that's in so much of school and which um, all of us who teach can see and unfortunately can see increasing um, that we need to question the nature of school. So the bottom line for me is that um, school, like work, should be pleasurable, and there's no reason that the pleasure of school shouldn't be the central purpose of schooling. Um, we unfortunately attach a negative connotation to pleasure the same way that we attach a negative connotation to utopia, and yet we shouldn't. Pleasure and happiness are what we all strive for. Um, and learning is a central 
human desire, very central, um, and not one just limited to children. And so schools should be pleasurable. Pleasure should be a central function of schools, and schooling should be for all ages. And so that's a kind of um, summary of some of the changes that I would make in schooling. Universal education, would that be part of what you would like to see? I'd like to see it provided to everyone. Mm -hmm. Um, And I know this is going to be a provocative statement in some ways. I wouldn't like to see it compelled um, in the same way that it is. I'd like to see um, an absence of grading and tests and all of the things that students dislike. And I know that there will be listeners who will say, well, if you don't require it, no one will go to school. But that's actually not true. I worked in an area of China in the mountains the second time that I did my China research um, where kids were often not able to go to school because they lived in the high mountains. This is an ethnic minority group um, in China. And I remember hearing so often stories from kids saying that they would beg their parents to go to school, that they had seen the schoolrooms um, down the mountain, and they talked with such um, enthusiasm about their desire to learn. And by it not being compelled and by their actually being told by their parents, you can't and shouldn't go to school because it's dangerous to get there, the kids, of course, had a great desire to go to school. And um, I want, remember one young man who had started at seven going to school because he begged his parents to go and enjoyed it and um, appreciated the, it the whole way. Mm. Another aspect of many people's lives, work. Yes. This whole... Um, for lack of a better term, dichotomy between work Mm -hmm. and play. How do you see that uh, playing out? And let me just mention, too, for the benefit of anybody who's just joining us in discussion, we're talking with Martin Shainholz. Martin is an anthropologist on the faculty of Appalachian State University, and he's talking with us about his uh, latest book entitled Work, Love, and Learning in Utopia, Equality Reimagined. Yes, so work versus play. Well, that's a division that we establish in society um, rather artificially, because as I said uh, a minute ago, things that are play we can turn into work. Um, Things that are work under the right conditions we can see as being joyful, and playful, and we create that division because we have a a moral um, taint to the idea of playing. Um, We see it as something that's fun but not virtuous, and um, oftentimes know that we should feel guilty if we're quote-unquote playing and not doing our quote-unquote work. And I think that division is a really unfortunate one because we all know how much it divides us um, and pulls us in different directions between wanting to be 
productive and virtuous and yet also wanting to enjoy ourselves. And there's no reason that that has to be the case. Um, Work became um, odious to us partly because the Puritans attached a moral virtue to it, but a moral virtue as long as it was seen as a sacrifice. And so the puritanical tradition that people refer to in America is one um, that disparages pleasure and play um, and elevates work. And that's a historical creation of a division that doesn't need to exist. And it wouldn't exist if work weren't coerced and weren't given that kind of artificial elevation precisely because it's not pleasurable. If work and play were both engaged in um, equally, then we could accord both of them equal value. I think it's really sad that so many things that people do with such joy and such engagement um, as what we often refer to as hobbies or play are things that we ourselves and other people denigrate. Uh, um, I sing in a voluntary choir in, in New York City. We're really great. And yet the fact that we're volunteers and, and not paid um, means that we don't attract the attention of other people just by definition because we're not workers. And, that's unfortunate because lots of times amateurs are as good, if not better, than some professionals. Mm. But, you know, we live in a society where everything, or excuse me, not everything, but mm-hmm. many things are valued because of their quote unquote worth, and that worth is tied to dollars and cents. Yeah. I guess it is. How do we, in utopia how would we get past that and would there even be basically a need for money i really would like to see uh money disappear and so one of my proposals in utopia is that money as an instrument of exchange as an instrument of the storage of wealth um be eliminated and Um, I know that's also a provocative suggestion, but if you look at humans, there are so many things that we do without having to be paid that are really, really productive and creative and important. One being parenting, a very, very hard um, uh, activity, of course, I don't have to tell anyone that, and yet it's something that we're not paid to do. Um, And there I think there's a certain blindness among us to so many of the things that people do um, without being paid, so many very, very important things that we don't realize that um, people will engage in things and, you know, will, if, if you see someone engaging in a kind of charity, they can do it with great gusto without being paid. So, um, Money, money creates all kinds of funny distortions, too. The, the 2008 recession was created out of macroeconomic conditions that I don't fully understand and only economists can explain. 
And what's strange about it is that money in a market economy are supposed to be good at matching supply and demand, and yet the demand that existed after 2008 crash was the same as the demand before, and yet the 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 supply and demand were out of whack. And so, so many people were thrown out of work for no real reason. And when I say no real reason, what I mean is that the needs of people and the ability of the world to meet those needs were the same before the crash, as, um, or rather after the crash, were the same as before the crash, and yet the crash happened and led to this huge dislocation. Why? It doesn't need to happen. I want to ask you a question that I always I try to put myself in the mind of people listening to this discussion. Somebody listening might, I think, be wondering this question. Mm-hmm. How would utopia be administered? A question that I can only give a partial answer to, and I have a whole chapter on the administration of utopia. But one of the things when I thought about um, entrenched power and the dangers of entrenched power that can happen in any society, even a utopian one, I thought to myself that American juries are a kind of model of ways that power doesn't become entrenched. They're voluntary, they're temporary, um, people don't really want to serve on them oftentimes, and yet we do out of a sense of obligation and devotion. We go serve on them, serve for a certain period of time, and then are relieved of our duties. And um, so I've created uh, a kind of model of administration of utopia in which the administrators will be voluntary, they'll be randomly chosen, um, some like what like a jury, they'll administer for a period of time and then they'll rotate off service and other people will come on. And that's not the only thing that will happen in utopia to work to prevent the kind of entrenchment of power, but it's a very important thing that will help to provide to prevent entrenched power from happening. Mm. I really want to see everyone involved, not just in, you know, today democracy means voting for people and then forgetting about um, politics for many people until four years later. And society should not be that way. Anyone and everyone who has good ideas should be involved in putting forth those ideas, debating them with other people, and having a chance to experiment. So I also create a kind of realm for experimentation in utopia, too. And I think that's really important, that it be uh, a living and breathing, that society should be a living and breathing organism, that it can be changed and experimented with by people, and that all people who want to should have a chance to engage in um, putting forth their own good ideas. I put forth mine in the book, but I hope that other people will join in the conversation. Martin, when you talk about... Um, some of the things that you're sharing with us in this book. And the book, again, is entitled Work, Love, and Learning in Utopia, Equality Reimagined. We're talking with Martin Shainhalls on our program. I'm Bob Salter. Your idea of utopia, I don't think I'm overly simplifying this to say it's really built on expectations of people being at their best, okay, mm-hmm. rather than their least. Mm-hmm. But then how would you deal with utopians who are going to disagree or perhaps outsiders who are going to try to threaten the peace? That's a 
of course, a really challenging question Mm -hmm. and one, again, that I can only give a short answer to here. But one of the things that I want to do as much as possible is not use kind of punitive measures against people. If there are people who don't want to be part of utopia, um, they don't have to be. And so I've suggested that there could be a way that um, land could be set aside for those people, that they could go onto the land and um, not be a part of utopia, but it wouldn't be a kind of exile or imprisonment or punishment for they're not um, exceeding to the desires of utopia. They could come and go and visit people in utopia. People could visit them, um, and they would be free to create their own society on land as they wish. So there's, there's nothing um, compulsory about utopia. Um, and I think that's a really, really important principle, obviously something that I've articulated throughout our discussion, that it not be compulsory and not be um, punitive. And um, so that that's my response in um, short for how people who disagreed or weren't happy with utopia um, could be accommodated. Most interesting concepts contained in Work, Love, and Learning in Utopia, Equality Reimagined, most interesting concepts contained in our discussion, hopefully, as well. Martin Shane Halls, an anthropologist on the faculty at Appalachian State University, joining us to talk with us about this uh, book. Thank you very much for joining us, and also thank you for uh, providing some things and um, hopefully some inspiration for thought on the part of folks listening to us. Good luck with this book and with your work. Thanks so much, Bob. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.